Behind every good story is an interesting person. This is Person of Interest with Q102's Jeff Thomas. Well, we wanted to have Thane Maynard on as our person of interest this week because Thane Maynard, who we've always sort of considered the the face of the zoo, I know there's an official title in there somewhere, but we rarely get to hear about the man behind the face of the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Gardens. Thane Maynard, welcome to Person of Interest. How are you? I'm good, and you're nice to have me, and the station's near the zoo, so this worked out easily. I just came rolling downhill. Uh, You are officially the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Gardens Zoo Director. Yeah. An adamant environmentalist, conservationist, storyteller, father of three, husband of 40-something years. <laughs> it's true. Most of the people that live in Cincinnati know you as kind of being from here, always being around, but you're not from here originally. Well, I grew up in central Florida, a little town north of Orlando called Winter Park, Florida, and had a great youth. It was the last generation before air conditioning landed in Florida, before Disney landed in my hometown, so... Uh, it was pretty much just kids spending time outdoors, tales of a misspent youth, that kind of thing. But that led to me studying biology and a little bit of right place at the right time, ending up at the zoo. You're a kid growing up in Winter Park, Florida. Youngest of five. Youngest of five. Yeah. The world's run by oldest children, and it's really enjoyed by youngest children. That's just the way it is. So what was the interest? I don't know if there are any listeners old enough to remember. People didn't used to do anything in the summer. Right today, you hear, oh, we're taking the family here. We're going to go. We're going to. Oh no, 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 no. My friends and I nothing to do. My friends and I sat around my hometown, and it was so hot. You didn't stay inside because it was hot inside. So we had no choice but to go wherever there was water. There are a lot of lakes in Central Florida because once you're wet, you aren't hot anymore. Right. And so that led to catching all the snakes we could, and the great joy of our youth all the way through high school was trying to find baby alligators. And that sounds insane today, Jeff, because if you went to Florida or South Carolina, the one thing you should worry about is alligators. Oh, any fresh body of water, I worry about that. But uh, 50 years ago, you couldn't find a baby gator if you had to. Really? Uh, You know, in my hometown, you know, it's a suburban style. I mean, you you go down there now, you you find them in shopping malls. Oh, yeah. Truly, there were none in my hometown. We explored every lake, every way. And the reason I can attest there were none is it's easy to find gators at night. You Mm. go with a big flashlight. Shine it right on the water, and their eyes shine back bright red. They're nocturnal, so they're active at night. You, a gator can't hide at night. Yeah. So to catch them, we would have to go way, way out into the country. You know, down dirt roads, and mo- much of Central Florida was dirt roads and um, citrus groves and pine forests uh, before all the big development. The coast of Florida has been developed a long, long time—a hundred years. But the central part of the state, really, other than the Orlando sort of I four. Um, interstate area is still mostly agricultural anyway so we'd go way in the country to swamps and lakes and and you could find gators then it's hilarious we used to swim at night all the time my friends and i would meet you know way pre-dawn and swim across a lake and have a big time you would no more do that you, truly you would never get do arrested. that you would never do that today <laughs> yeah. not You're just not because gonna. you get arrested but because oh, it's just, very dangerous yeah gators are everywhere my youngest daughter Got her PhD at University of Florida. And so I went down there a number of times over the last handful of years. I kid you not, this is the biggest school in the state of Florida, 50,000 students. You jog through campus. It's like jogging through UC. Oh, wherever there's a big body of water, there's a couple of big gators laying right there in the sun. You're like, whoa. I that is wonder crazy. what happens. I honestly do wonder what happens on football Saturday nights, 
yeah. drunk fraternity boys and grown gators on campus. That is the worst combination I ever heard of. And, and so what? I mean, this just inspired an interest in, in wildlife and ecology in you that you wanted to explore further as a kid growing up? Well, I was lucky. I went to a small college in my hometown, Rollins College, and studied biology. And, you know, when you're studying in college, you don't get to just run around and catch snakes and gators, but it was able to tie into the biology I was interested in. And, you know, volunteered with the Florida Audubon Society, and so I got to spend a lot of time out there. And I'm better at working with animals, telling stories than I am uh, at academics. But I did go to grad school at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and, again, studied wildlife biology. And you probably notice this maybe with yourself or if you have any sons, young men coming up are not very good at thinking ahead. So I got a master's degree and my college uh, girlfriend had tracked me down. We got married and I realized literally just one day, I don't think I'm going to get to move to Africa. Like I had figured I'd, you know, get a degree and move to Africa and get a Land Rover and cruise around. That was the plan. Like that was no. kind of what did that was. Well, what, I just figured kid? that's what would happen. Right. So all of a sudden I realized I probably need a job. Right. So I came to Cincinnati cause that's where my wife's from and she already had a job. Right. And this is long enough ago. I think she made 9,000 bucks a year, which when you had been a grad student, you're like, man, that's, that's some serious. We can money. live on that. Yeah. So, so I needed a job. And I didn't know anybody in town, so I found a little booklet. Honestly, it, people today would never do this, find everything on their phone, right? But I tracked down a booklet of the alumni of the School of Natural Resources where I got a master's, and there was only one person in our whole region who went to that school, and she was a professor of biology at UC. So I tracked her down and chatted with her, and she said, well, I don't know anything about jobs, but the zoo is just a couple blocks from here, and they're building a new education center. They might need somebody to teach programs. And I thought, the zoo? because Growing up in Central Florida, there really wasn't a zoo. You know, like today, 40 years, 50 years later, there's this great renaissance of zoos. There's good zoos all over the place. Really, there are. There are 200 accredited zoos in America and at least 100 of those towns, at least 100. You know, they're one of the best zoos in the country. Wow. It's just a lot of emphasis, a lot of pride, like where you went to school. But 50 years ago, that was not the case. There weren't very many good zoos and there weren't very many of them. So I'm like, okay, well, and so I went up to the zoo, and it truly was just right place at the right time. Uh, Proctor and Gamble had funded a new education center. It was a new concept. Zoos had not emphasized education much prior to that. And it had, had five classrooms, and I was lucky to get a job. So uh, one thing led to the next. Although I do remember uh, when we went to rent our first apartment, it was the first floor of a two-floor two house. It was a young guy who owned the house. He lived upstairs. Ben Toscello, good guy. and. I'm filling out the lease at the kitchen table, and he says, do you have a job? I said, yeah, I've got a job. Where is it? At the zoo. He grabs the lease and says, that doesn't sound like much of a job. Wow. But anyway, uh, we talked our way in, and we lived there for a while. And he was a good guy. But uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure my wife's father and his friends said the same thing. Was it, you know, what's with his nature nut, man? That doesn't sound like much of a job. But, uh, things work out over time. You talk about how especially boys, you know, when you're young, you don't necessarily plan ahead. You must have had an idea in your mind what you saw yourself doing as an adult someday. And maybe it was trekking around Africa and exploring the wild. What was it? Because for me, I know like my parents and grandparents, they grew up watching Marlon Perkins' oh, yeah. Wild Kingdom. And yeah, I met Marlon way back when. And Jim Fowler, I know he's an old guy now too, but a good guy. Was that how you saw yourself someday as being maybe one of those guys? You know, while I did imagine that, 
and you're coming up, I didn't imagine, well, gosh, you know, I'll probably end up with a mortgage and three kids and car payments. How am I going to do that? But, you know, when you're young coming up, you don't think that. Working at the zoo, I have been fortunate to do a lot of those things. I went on the trip of a lifetime this spring. We went to the Congo. Our uh, curator of primates, Ron Evans, and I went with folks that are working with gorillas and chimpanzees in the wild, where the zoo's been involved for 20 years helping support that work. And man, that was something. National Geographic calls it the last place on earth. And it it is really remote and really something. So that was neat. Anyway, so uh, a long, long time ago, 1977, I ended up starting at the zoo. And, you know, those were the early days of this renaissance that I mentioned in American zoos. You know, if you think of all the things the zoo does today with, you know, we have music and and we have zoo brew, we have zoo fari, which is a fundraiser. We have our festival of lights at night. You know, we have our big zoo fari, black tie fundraiser coming. So much interaction. All those things started in the early 80s. So that, that beginning of the zoo being so, so present. And there are a whole bunch of reasons for that. And one is the zoo's open every day. So it can't just be a place that people come from, you know, Memorial Day to Labor Day. We've got to have a place where people come all the time. So we try to stretch our day. We try to stretch our season, try to be a place for uh, different audiences. Of course, our bread and butter is, you know, moms, young kids, strollers. You're never going to come to the zoo and not see strollers. But we also have lots of other events for people of all ages. So when you started, you started out teaching classes Mm -hmm. at this new education center. At what point did you see yourself on a path that this is a place I'm going to hang out for a while? Because you left for a short time. Right. Well, I was here a pretty good while. I left in the year 2000 just for a couple of years and did go out to Seattle, which was great. And there are a lot of stories about why I came back. But one is uh, we ran out of money and came back to the Midwest. If you're going to move to the coast, man, you better go when you're young and build it up because yeah. I went at the exact time my oldest daughter started college. And anyone listening who has sent kids to college, it's not until they actually go to college you catch on. Man, this is more expensive than I thought it was going to be, <laughs> right? This isn't just a $17,000 sticker price. There's yeah. all sorts of parts that are cost. So Seattle is not a good fit, though it's a marvelous place. And uh, Cincinnati, for some reason, is a good fit for, uh, for me and how I do it. What was the attraction to wanting to see what Seattle had to offer? What did they have that that intrigued you? Well, certainly in that 18 years has grown to be uh, a well-known and remarkable metropolis. Mm. Uh, You know, it competes with San Francisco. Great city. As, you know, one of the most interesting cities in North America. It has two national parks, one on each side, just an hour away. Mm -hmm. There's not another place anywhere like that. Uh, Keen interest in the outdoors, lots of outdoors available. Uh, you've got, of course, the Pacific Ocean, Puget Sound, killer whales. I mean, there's a wide variety. Of, and there's a, a thing that sounds like a silly saying, but it's slightly funny because it's also slightly true. You can take the boy out of the zoo, but you can't take the zoo out of the boy. Right. If you work for 25 years at a place as kinetic and active and 24-7, 365 as a zoo, you know, when you leave and go somewhere that's more sedate and quiet, you know, you're like, What's going on around here today, right? Because, I mean, at the zoo, it happens every day. You know, we've had temperatures this last couple of weeks are so darn hot that we still have seven or 8,000 people coming to the zoo. So, uh, you know, it's an active place. And over time that you learn to sort of have that pace of what you do. Did you ever imagine when you came to Cincinnati in 1977 that with the exception of that time you spent in Seattle, that you would be here all this time? That's an interesting thing, especially as I look back on a long career. I think that is partly a Cincinnati thing. You talk to lots of people in Cincinnati. They've lived here a long time. And it's also a Midwest thing. You know, the people are close to family. 
they stick with what they're doing. They try to really play a role in their community. When I moved to Seattle and people heard that I had worked at the Cincinnati Zoo for 23, 24 years, they would look at you like, what? What? Yeah. Because it's a young city. We're not a young city. It's a young city. And most people, the concept, you know, a couple of years, boom, a couple of years, boom. Right. Um, and uh, that might be moving to different tech companies out there, also moving to completely different countries. Um, so that's just sort of a different perspective. Uh, in fact, it's funny on a lot of fronts, I will periodically get calls from colleagues of mine that run the zoos in Seattle or Portland, Oregon or San Francisco, where everybody's really groovy. And they'll say, would you stop putting out this national press about, for instance, the Cincinnati Zoo is recognized as the greenest zoo in America. And they just hate that. They're like, you, you know, you're from the Rust Belt, man. You don't even know what green is. So there, there are two Americas, right? The middle of the country is, in fact, less groovy than the coast. It's true. But it also costs about one-fifth as much to buy a house. No doubt. That's the way it goes. And I want to get to that when we come back. We have to take a break here as we continue with Person of Interest with Thane Maynard. But we want to find out from you, really, how you got the zoo to be the gem of not just the tri-state, but zoos throughout the country. This is one of the best, and you're a big part of that. And we're going to get into it coming up next as we continue with Person of Interest. We'll be back with more Person of Interest in a moment. And now, Person of Interest with Q102's Jeff Thomas continues. All right, welcome back to Person of Interest. Our guest today, Thane Maynard, who is the Cincinnati Zoo Botanical Garden Zoo Director. One of the things that we were talking about at the top of the show was really how far the zoo has come over the years. I think many people here in the community take for granted that this is not just a, a gem, an asset in our community, but one of the best in the nation. It is if not the best, what, is there a ranking that determines where we stand in relationship to other zoos in the country? Well, Jeff, there's not an official ranking, though there are groups that periodically will put together uh, programs. Uh, Frommer's Guide, uh, Zagat Surveys, both listed us as the third best on the, the Frommer's. It was uh, the San Diego Zoo and the St. Louis Zoo and us. And in Zagat, it was the San Diego Zoo, then the Bronx Zoo, then us. And while that's not an official ranking, it was an honor to be up with those big boys because just like the Cincinnati Reds are wildly underfunded compared to the L.A. Dodgers, yeah. uh, the Cincinnati Zoo is as well, right? So what's that mean? Well, our budget this year, our operating budget is $36 million. The budget of the San Diego Zoo is $360 million, oh, wow. right? So to be in the same game with them is an interesting thing. And you say, well, why would that be? Well... Anyone that says, why would that be, hasn't been to San Diego, right? The weather's good every day. Yeah. There's a zillion tourists, and they all have 100 bucks in their pocket. And that's a different environment than Cincinnati. Mm. In Cincinnati, comparatively, we would be known as a great overachiever among zoos, right? We're the biggest attraction in Cincinnati, over 1.8 million visitors a year, biggest attraction in Hamilton County. And I'm talking about pulling that off in the middle of a city at the corner of Vine and Erkenbrecker, right? How, how do you do that? Well... As I said, we spread it out as best we can. Lots of events, lots of times of day, lots of times of the year. So there's lots to do at the zoo. Also, we've worked very hard over the last 12 years I've been director to make the zoo a much more active place. You might remember as a kid, the zoo was great, but you'd go and you'd say, well, you know, what did we see today? Well, we, the rhinos were asleep and the tigers were asleep and pretty much everybody was asleep. 
because people would come to the zoo at one in the afternoon in August. Right. right. Well, if you go fishing, you don't go one in the afternoon in August. If you go bird watching, right, you go in the morning, you go in the evening. Yeah. So we've done a lot to make the zoo more active. Uh, we also have more animals out on the grounds in a thing we call wild encounters. So you might have a chance to walk up and pet a snake or an owl or get your picture taken with an exotic animal so that at the end of the day, when you go home, it's really memorable and you want to go again. Uh, the value of that is, since we're not a tourist town, we want people to join the zoo. We have a tremendous zoo membership. 70,000 families belong to the zoo. And that makes up about half our annual visitors come more than once. Mm -hmm. um, and then also having the zoo play a big role in the community. Right? We don't just sit up there on the hill. I mean, you can't believe all the things we do. We work with the Reds on the big community makeovers. Our horticulture team does a lot of the work. We work with the Avondale Community Council and throughout the the churches and the Urban League in Avondale, and partner with anybody we can. We're working with Duke Energy, for instance, in a terrific program called Light Up Avondale. And through some funding from Duke, some contributed LED lights, the zoo's working with electricians, but to improve the efficiency of lighting and the availability of lighting throughout Avondale. That's public lighting. That's nonprofits like all the community churches, uh, the Urban League, as well as people's individual homes. They can get on the schedule. And it may only save 50 bucks a year, but with newer and improved lighting that will help their lifestyle and 50 bucks a year is 50 bucks a year. It helps both in the amount of coal that's burned for that electricity and of course helps everybody's pocketbook. So yeah, we, um, if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. That's how we do it at the zoo. But it's an extension of outreach that goes yeah. beyond the borders of the zoo. Well, you know how that happened is when I was made director, we went through great strategic planning, had a marvelous colleague of mine named Harry Kanjus, who's a Procter & Gamble alum, who helped us with our strategic plan. And we boiled down our mission. And our mission's always been, okay, we're here for the public, and we're here for conservation, we're here for education. But a board member of ours, Odell Owens, Dr. Odell Owens, you probably had him on your show. Former coroner. Former coroner, former head of Cincinnati State, an MD and a good guy, a neighbor of mine. And he said, hang on a minute. The Cincinnati Zoo is for Cincinnati. You need to put this community in that mission. So our mission today is creating adventure, conveying knowledge, saving wildlife, and serving community. And, and we take it seriously. We're part of this city and we get on board. We do. We work with Children's Hospital on all kinds of things. We have a terrific program that's one of my favorites called Eat Like an Animal. And it works with a lot of schools, principally urban schools near the zoo. And the part you'd get a kick out of, yes, it's a nutrition program, but no, it doesn't tell kids what to eat. Because over the years of doing it, there is one thing we've learned about humans. They do not like to be told what to do. Right. When Michael Bloomberg in New York said, that's it, people aren't going to drink soda pop, we're going to tax it, soda pop sales went through the roof. Sure. People do not want to be told what to do. Of course. So what we do instead is celebrate as they visit the zoo. Okay, here are a couple of animals. What do they eat? Why? Hmm. Because, for instance, a walrus and a manatee look like they're cousins, but they're completely unrelated. One eats only animals, one eats only green plants. And, you know, just talk about their metabolism, et cetera. And a little bit over time, it rubs off on them that, isn't that wild? They feed these animals better than they feed people, uh, which is true at everybody's home. It's corny, but I've never known a person who feeds their dog the wrong thing. There's some innate thing. Well, no, the dog should not be eating potato chips and Diet Coke. That's not what dogs eat. So instead, you feed them to your kids, right? That's not what kids should eat either, but uh, that's what we do. Are you a vegetarian? Do you eat meat? 
You know, I'm not a vegetarian. Um, a couple of my kids are. Um, my good friend Jane Goodall is, and she admonishes me for that that we should. And because uh, you do have a much smaller sort of carbon footprint and energy footprint um, by eating plants than eating, say, for instance, cows. I don't eat a lot of red meat though, but I do eat my body weight in chicken. I think. Right. Um, but you know, I try to get some exercise and get out there. Let's talk about the impact that Fiona had. Let's look at the zoo before Fiona mm -hmm. and after Fiona. It was like lightning in a bottle. That is the truth. Once in a lifetime. How much intention played a role in that? You know, a lot of it was one circumstance after another, the cards fell in the right way. When she was born prematurely, no one had ever even seen a premature baby hippo like that. Hippos are normally very big, you know, 100 pounds, very precocious, like a gigantic watermelon, very active. They're born underwater. They climb on their mom's back. They nurse underwater. Almost all hoofed animals, from elephants down to little gazelles, are very active on the day they're born to be able to move the group. She was not. She looked like a little deflated football. But Bibi, her mom, it was first birth, didn't know to give birth underwater, and she was flummoxed by the whole thing, so gave birth to her up on the hay on, in a dry area in the barn. And I was there, and the keepers looked at each other, young women, and said, we can do this. And I'm looking at them like, man, you are going to get your heart broken, because I didn't think it would work. Really? It never been done, yeah. right? No one had ever milked a hippo. We had to get milk from BB. Wow. Nobody had ever raised a little baby like that. And, you know, it's just like with human premature babies. It takes a lot. So even then, you're not thinking anything is going to come of this. Well, I knew we'd give it a shot. We've raised a lot of babies. Zoos, right. you know, zoos are actually leaders in the animal welfare field, if you think about it. With the, Our zoo, as an example, has three full-time veterinarians, three full-time vet techs, which are like vet nurses, uh, full-time nutritionist, 88 keepers that are professionally trained, you know, half a dozen curators. I mean, we... We go the distance for our animals, and we've saved many, many animals that have been premature and had all sorts of special challenges. But it had never been done like with Fiona. And sure enough, it worked. We did find our most petite scientist in our research program, slid her underneath Bibi, and she was able to milk her. I mean, who's ever milked a hippo, right? But Bibi uh, had antibodies that needed to get into Fiona, and we needed to send off her milk to figure out what was in it. So half went to Fiona, half went to be tested, and we found out what was in it. So we started making initially small bottles, human-sized bottles, and eventually gallon bottles that she'd drink six of at a time because she nursed for months, many months, eight months or so. Um, and clearly she's been a food hog because she's almost 1,000 pounds now. But each step of the way as she got stronger, people were more hopeful, but cautiously hopeful because, again, it had never been done. Um, as an example, when she started to swim, First inside in a pool that's about five or six feet deep, and then outside in a pool that's about nine feet deep. You know, she was only one foot tall. And I know people have heard this, but until you see it, it's sort of, you know, incongruous in your mind. Hippos do not float. They do not swim. They sink right to the bottom. Mm. So she'd take a big breath and sink right to the bottom like wow. you dropped a bowling ball in. Yeah. And she'd be down there for five minutes or so and push back to the top and take a breath and go down. Well, for the first month, we had keepers in there with her every day in wetsuits. Still like, oh my God, oh my God, I hope it's all right. And eventually, our curator, uh, coach of Team Fiona, a woman named Christina Gorsha, she says she's good at being a hippo. She can do this. So the people got out, and they just, from then on, she was with her mom swimming. But we were nervous every step of that way. 
And famously, I'm sure you've heard the story that Cincinnati Children's Hospital saved Fiona's life. She wouldn't have made it but for them. Like with lots of premature animals, lots of babies. Eventually, at, I don't know, six weeks, eight weeks old, she started to get dehydrated. She had diarrhea. She wasn't able to eat or drink. She was losing weight. And keepers on that Friday were thinking they were saying goodbye, that they'd never see her again when mm. they got back on Monday. Yeah. But we called Children's. And they sent over two nurses that are part of a thing called the vascular access team. And I'm telling you, it's like calling a SWAT team. They walk in, cocky as can be. They're, you've never seen a vein we can't hit. Wow. And, I'm, and I'm thinking, yeah, you've never seen a hippo vein. Your hippos are fat. Yeah. Even babies, you can't see. Like, you can see veins on a human. You can't see veins on a hippo. They had a fancy little uh, ultrasound wand and a little gun. And pow, hit it first time. Wrapped her up, left. Our work is done before they got out of their van at Children's, which is about 300 yards from the hippo barn. Right. She'd pulled it out. No kidding. And instead of them saying, well, are you kidding me? They came back. They uh, put it in again and they sutured it in, stitched it in her Mm -hmm. skin so she couldn't pull it out. It stayed in for a week and she's gained weight every day since. So it takes a village to raise a hippo, I'll tell you that. But at what point did you know? I mean, given the amount of publicity that came out of this and the national interest, Mm -hmm. the impact that that would have on grants and donations and that kind of thing, at what point did you put it together in your head and say, my goodness, this could be the biggest thing that the Mm -hmm. zoo has seen in its lifetime? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. As I mentioned, all those cards fell in the right way. As she started to grow... And once she was able to go out, you know, swim on her own, be with her mom, it sure seemed like it was working. Uh, goodness knows she was growing and eating, so that was a sign. Yeah. Uh, all that time, there was unbelievable interest in her. And if you think about it, there's a number of reasons these cards fell the right way. Because when's the first time you ever saw a cute hippo? Right? Nobody's ever seen a cute hippo, typically. The great big old things, they're giant, they lay there in the water. But because we have clear water and glass, and she was so small, we were able to show how cute she really is. And even to this day, she's a year and a half old. And she's super cute still. Um, so that helped the visuals of telling that story. And obviously social media did too, uh, that by showing those pictures, telling that story, it, you know, it's a great saved from the brink story and people love that kind of story. So that's part of it in terms of partnerships and support. I mean, I can't say enough from day one, you know, uh, you can name them Buskin bakery, Cincy shirts, Listerman Brewery, Rookwood, Pottery, and I'm leaving out 25 others. I mean, uh, even the Cincinnati Reds, their number one attended game this year was the Fiona Giveaway Bobblehead Night. I was there. It was in July. On that plaza, it felt like a 1,000 degrees. And I mean, thousands of people are standing in line to get those bobbleheads. So uh, that's been a, a fun thing, and all those groups have been great supporters of the zoo. Have you noticed that there's a difference in the way that the animals interact with humans and humans interact with the animals? You know, we sort of live in the cell phone generation where we go to the zoo and it's sometimes hard to live in the moment. It's like we're there to see the animals, but we're spending so much time doing selfies. And of Mm -hmm. course, you want the animals to be more present so that there's more engagement there. How have the audiences, how have the crowds changed over the years since you started in this? You know, that's interesting. We've tried to work hard to make our exhibits bigger. Step by step, you might remember our old elephant house had not just elephants, which are now on one acre, but it had giraffes, elephants, rhinos, tapir, hippos, all sorts of things all in that same space. So by pushing those animals out into other areas, gives each of them more space. So people are able to see them in more natural behaviors 
and in more natural settings. In terms of almost relationships people might have with animals, that's an interesting one. We do a lot of keeper talks or keeper chats every day. And when you come to the zoo, you'll see different schedules for them. And, you know, people are happy to see me and I'll tell them what's going on with the zoo. Or they're happy to see a zoo volunteer, of which we have hundreds. But they really want to hear from the keepers who know the animals best. They really know they can differentiate every single bonobo, one from another, just by glancing at them. Whereas I'd stand there like, yeah, I think that's the male. I'm not sure, you know. And they want to know the name and how old they are and all that. And the keepers know that because it's part of their family. Um, So that kind of interaction is a tremendous amount of fun. A funny thing about so much information being out on the web and out on Facebook, a thing happens today that did never happen years ago. I might be somewhere, you know, a dinner or something, and people sitting around and don't really know anybody. And there'll be some lady sitting at that table. She knows more about Fiona than I do. I'm like, how? where do you get all this? Oh, man, I read every single this and this. You know, there's a lot of information Isn't out there. Isn't that wild? So people care about animals. You know, our task at the zoo and our sort of working motto, and we work hard to get everybody, the kids that are at the gate and the people selling uh, parking cars, get everybody to embrace that our purpose is to inspire every visitor with wildlife every day. We don't just want to be a place, okay, whatever. We want people to leave and say, you know what, I really care about wildlife. I'm fired up about wildlife. I can't wait to see them again or learn more about them. And uh, zoos are good at that. You know, our greatest strength is that zoos are so popular. Not just Cincinnati Zoo, but many zoos. Everybody goes there, right? The reason Kroger's is a big sponsor and Mike's Car Wash is everybody that goes to the grocery store gets a car washed or whatever it might be, goes to Frisch's also goes to the zoo, right? It's not an exclusive club. Right. Um, there are marvelous smaller groups. You know, some people are in the Sierra Club, for instance, it's a neat thing, but it's a niche. Everybody uh, goes to a zoo. So there's a chance to reach so many people. That's the reason I was interested in getting in the zoo field so long ago, thinking we could reach more people about wildlife. Well, after, gosh, making the zoo the greenest in the country, I read you saved over a billion gallons of water, over $11 million in utilities, and to be honest, it is what lets us save enough money that we can reinvest. You know, the zoo's very old. We're headed toward our 150th anniversary. So those kinds of utility savings are vital to us. Just like anybody who owns an old house needs an awful lot of TLC to make sure everything's working. And let's talk about the TLC and, and the yeah. role that the future plays in all sure. that. Well, the, in terms of the uh, sustainability programs we have, our great leap forward was one individual. Uh, Twelve years ago, we hired a civil engineer from Turner Construction named Mark Fisher. And anyone who's not heard him speak should look on our zoo website and see where he might be connecting with people because he's just one of a kind. And if you don't believe it, he'd be happy to tell you the world could be saved by civil engineers. And he is the one who looked at the water bill on his very first day at work and said, did you know if you turned on every faucet at the zoo full blast, you couldn't use half this much water? I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, there's some broken pipes here because that is a lot no kidding. of water. Wow. We were the biggest water user and biggest water waster in the whole metropolitan. Really? Zoo. Now think about that. Yeah. More than golf courses, mm. which are hundreds of acres. Sure. More than the University of Cincinnati. I mean, it's just, we shouldn't be using that much. Yeah. Well, sure enough, we had a lot of old systems, a lot of broken pipes, a lot of leaking lakes, all those kinds of things. So fixing those, putting in newer equipment was part of it. But The real success for us was putting in, in in essence, what are cisterns. We currently have two real big systems under our main solar parking lot and under our great big eight-acre Africa exhibit. We catch all that rainwater. As we develop the last big parking lot on the north end of the zoo over the next few years, 
and put in a big elephant exhibit. If you think, if you've been to the zoo, that back parking lot's the lowest point in the zoo. So that'll catch the other half, other two-thirds, really. And um, we'll get completely off both the stormwater grid, which is important because the system's old in Cincinnati, and we'll also use a whole lot less water. We use less than one-sixth the amount of tap water we used in 2006 as a result of using rainwater. For instance, Fiona swims in rainwater. All those waterfalls and moats for the lions and such are rainwater. All rainwater. Polar bears swim in rainwater. Hmm. And it's a gigantic savings. And so what's new? What's next? Well, we've the, launched a campaign, and I love being on your podcast to share it because I really hope the public will get involved. It's our big 150th anniversary celebration. That'll be in 2025. Zoo's been open every day since 1875. Um, but it's a huge campaign. It's $150 million. And we still have $95 million to go. And as you've, I'm sure, heard many times, the last $95 million are the hardest. Yeah, right. Uh, but truth is, everybody can participate, even in a smaller amount. We've had folks you know, commit to $150 a year for five years in honor of our 150th. But what it's going to do is transform the zoo from where it is today to really a zoo of the future. The biggest part of it, when it's done, call that you know, five or six years from now, We'll be taking that back parking lot, five acres, and making that five acres for elephants. Elephants now, at the zoo have one acre, so it's five times as bigger, but it's actually much more than that. It'll be much more diverse and complex. The very same thing we did over the last 40 years for gorillas is what we're now hoping to do for elephants. So what do I mean? Well, gorillas used to be kept separately. Babies used to be pulled from their moms. Everybody had to be bottled. Everybody was nervous. But over time zoo curators and zoo keepers realize, you know, gorillas are good at living together. They'll be all right. The dads aren't going to kill the kids. It's going to work. And sure enough, we have a great big group, Jomo and his group. There's eight gorillas there. We have three in another group, getting another group of three and put them together. And it's much, much healthier for them to raise their own young. So they grow up to be gorillas and don't grow up thinking, well, that's weird. I wonder why no one's feeding me a bottle anymore. Right? Right. Uh, because to be honest, one of the reasons Fiona is so affectionate to people, if you go there right now with a camera, she'll come right over and look, is she was raised by people. So she doesn't see you as something different. She's like, I love people, right? Right. Anyway, with elephants, we're working to do the very same thing. Have enough space that you can keep the bull with the cows. You can keep them a multi-generational herd and they'll be able to breed and have really a great life. And the zoo's committed to having elephants 50 years from now. That's a big commitment financially for the space, for the program, but elephants are in trouble uh, all over the world. Asian elephants are down to about 30,000 only. Uh, African elephants are still about 400,000, but unfortunately they're being poached while we're on this show. And, and we're hearing too that a lot of these countries that at one time were sort of the model for elephant conservation, for whatever reason, some of these policies have either fallen by the wayside or there was just a a lack of oversight. There's a challenge with poaching that's very tough. Everybody had naively thought in the 1980s that they kind of gotten past it, you know, with elephants and rhinos. Um, they famously had the, you know, the ivory ban. But there's an increased Chinese market as well as other Asian market uh, that's uh, daunting, you know. And unfortunately, the, the rules of economics apply. If somebody's willing to pay a thousand bucks for something, somebody will go out and find it. So. There's a lot of work ongoing with that, um, and the zoo supports both Asian and African elephant conservation, um, and we'll get there. But anyway, on our More Home to Roam campaign, it's that same process I was talking about, giving elephants more room, 
Uh, we're going to give polar bears more room. And when you say more room, you mean five times more space for the elephants yeah, than they have great. now. If you're familiar with that back parking lot, you'll come down to where our you know, picnic grove area is now. Right. There'll be a flat plaza. Underneath it will be a gigantic elephant barn that from that side you wouldn't see. You'll be above it. Because of the top- topography, that'll allow you to look out over this great big five-acre yard. Um, during the cold of winter, those elephants will be inside. So it'll be a big barn. But most of the year, It'll be indoor, outdoor. They'd have their own free choice. Do they go in or do they come out? In addition to them, we're working on more room for polar bears, an iconic and important species. We have a great program. We're trying to breed them. In fact, we're working with Senator Portman's office to try to be able to uh, import some orphan bears from Alaska and hopefully be able to breed those. Because Just like on a dairy farm, you need younger animals to breed. We're going to create more room for black rhinos. They're the only animal that's ever been on the zoo logo. Uh, we Currently have a baby, Kendi. We lead the world in breeding them. We've had 17 baby black rhinos at our zoo. But we're going to create a much bigger vista. So for the public, it'll be nice, but also give us room for more rhinos. I don't have $150 million laying around or $95 million laying around. But what can the average person listening right now that wants to be a sure. part of this growth and contribute? What well, can they do right now? There's a tremendous amount that anyone can do. In the world of social media, part of it is just spreading the word. You can look on the zoo's website. There's a lot of information on our program called More Home to Rome. That's the name for the campaign. Ways you can easily contribute yourself. Also, you can share that through your social media group. Uh, say, for instance, if someone said, you know what, I'm in on this. I'm going to give 150 bucks a year for five years. If you share that with people that you know and trust, they'll say, well, what the heck? If Jeff's in for that, I'll be in for it. Or if you don't have that much, it could be less. In addition to the money side of it, though, it is telling the story, right? Currently... I would say most people in the tri-state say, you know what, Cincinnati Zoo is a pretty good zoo. That's great. They're doing good things. Heard about baby Fiona. Most of them don't say, hey, man, did you hear what the zoo's doing? It's going to be phenomenal. We're going to get this giant elephant facility. We're going to get the cars out of the zoo. You know, and here's where they're headed, and we're excited about it. By telling that story, it builds momentum. And by telling that story, it helps open doors, right? So other sponsors like the ones we'd mentioned, whether that's foundations or corporations, they start to hear or pay attention to social media and say, we maybe should get on board with the zoo. It feels like they're doing the right thing over there, right? So all of that's about just just building that momentum. You know, one of the most fascinating things to me uh, during my career is as we learn more about animals, some of that's at the Cincinnati Zoo, a lot of that is all over the world with field biologists or other institutions, and people are able to look more closely. There's not a day that goes by people don't, find something and say, man, alive, that's different than I thought it was. We recently had a uh, world expert on African painted dogs, yeah. formerly called the African wild dog. Uh, he came to town. His name is Dr. Tico McNutt. And he studied them forever, right? He's my, he studied them forever. He literally wrote the book on them. So he comes and gives his big talk and he says, well, you know what's fascinating? With the combination of miniaturized um, satellite telemetry and uh, really uh, effective ways of quickly studying, you know, DNA and relatedness. I come to realize these things are completely different than I thought they were when I got my PhD and became the world's biggest expert on these. That historically they couldn't follow them on real time, and so they assumed, okay, well, they're moving over there, and they wake up and there they are. Well, come to find out through DNA, when they periodically can, they can do stuff. They can tell that from feces today and urine. They're not even the same ones, right? So all the things he had as an assumption. 30 years ago, are being debunked as we learn more and more. So uh, animals will fool you. 
Uh, I remember I was once out west on a ranch in Montana, and a guy came from U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and he had a real-time satellite collar on a grizzly bear. And he came to talk to the group, and he you know, talked about, you know, they move and this and that, and then everybody's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of the ranchers don't like him, blah, blah, blah. And so then he throws up on the screen, well, this is from last night. This grizzly bear, a male, who during breeding season was on the move to find a female, walked right through that ranch. I mean, we were sitting in this bunkhouse sleeping. There's horses 20 yards away. The grizzly bear walked between the two. The horses Unreal. never knew, and the people never knew. Wow. The dogs never woke up. And, and he's like, yeah, you know, we learned stuff we didn't used to learn. So um, there's a lot going on out there. Uh, I think I would say that I'm heartened by over the years is people do more than ever care about wildlife. They're more aware than they were. They care more. The challenge is many, many areas are under such pressure that uh, there are lots of species that are circling the drain. You know, island species, say from Madagascar, for instance. Uh, lots of ones that live in ecosystems where the ecosystems are changing so drastically uh, that depend on ice in the Arctic, et cetera. Um, but more people than ever are working on it, and uh, we're going to get after it. This is the century we will wake up and realize saving nature is not about saving panda bears. Saving nature is about saving people. We depend just as much as pandas on natural systems that provide our air and water and all the resources we have. So. Um, if there's any mistake that's been made, I would say by the conservation field and certainly the environmental movement, is that with a quick head fake, they were marginalized over to the side, where it's like, oh, well, you're over there with Al Gore and Bernie Sanders. That is not the case. I don't even think they let Democrats in the Nature Conservancy. Conservation's for everybody, absolutely everybody. It's for conservative ranchers. It's for Trump supporters. It's for everybody. Uh, it's not an us or them thing. It's really not. Uh, we need to do a better job at communicating that. And that's part of what the zoo does because we reach everybody. Keep fighting the good fight. There you go. Thane Maynard, thanks for coming on Person Jeff, of Interest. Jeff, thanks for having me. This is fun. And by the way, Person of Interest is produced by Natalie Jones. So if you found Thane as interesting as we did, please send us an email to POI, which stands for Person of Interest. That's POI at WKRQ.com. We always welcome your thoughts. And also, please feel free to make a suggestion for a future Person of Interest. Uh, be sure to check back with us. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Until next time, for Person of Interest, I'm Jeff Thomas, and thank you for listening. These are the people behind the stories that matter to you. Thanks for listening to Q102's Person of Interest with Jeff Thomas. 